put a picture here on the screen for you. This is uh, two just incredibly beautiful people I know. So this is a picture of Katie and I when we first started dating. Now, you might not be able to notice the hoop earrings that I'm rocking back then in my ears. Um, boy, were we young back then. And I was stupid, of course. I thought Katie was crushing it by getting to date me. And um, later on in life, I woke up after we were married at some point, and I was like, oh my gosh, I did not know how lucky I am that she said yes to me. Now, when we first started dating, I, I went up to Katie and I asked her for her telephone number. And she gave me this look. I mean, a, a look like I didn't believe I had any chance in the world. I'm not kidding. She was like, when I asked her for her phone number. And so what do you do in a moment like that as a guy? You've just put yourself out there. You think that you're going to, you know, get the phone number. And she looks at you like that. So I, I lie to her. And I tell her I want her phone number so that we can be friends. Now, listen to me, young ladies. If a guy ever comes up and asks you for your phone number to be friends, he is lying through his teeth. I had no interest in friendship. I wanted to date this young lady. And I am here today to tell you I am a living, breathing testimony that it worked. So I'm going to make a, an awkward analogy this morning, and I'm sorry for this awkward analogy. I just couldn't think of anything else. I'm not very creative, so you get what you get each week with me. I want to suggest to you today that the church is struggling with a discipleship deficit. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that people are coming into churches they're even being integrated into churches, but spiritually speaking, Christians are not leaving the nursery. They're not becoming mature in Christ. Now, here's where the awkward analogy comes into play. I think a big part of the problem with that is because Christians have stopped dating one another. I'll take the analogy any further than I intend. What I'm talking about this morning is just simply a, a more mature Christian going to a less mature Christian and saying, would you like to grab coffee sometime so that we can get to know one another? Why? Why is this so important? Well, it turns out that the vast majority of the teaching ministry of the church happens within the relationships of the church. So that is what we're talking about. If you believe in that, if you believe in the relationships of the church, then the church gets set on fire as Christians start interfacing in this sort of way. Remember, we're talking about best practices that end up orienting the church to become zealous for good works, that city on a hill that Jesus was talking about in my, uh, Matthew 5.14. And, and James covered the first best practice. It was preaching. The preaching really does set a church on fire. And then we looked last week at leadership, and today uh, we're going to talk about teaching, and I'm, I'm here to tell you that the vast majority of that teaching involves 
the relationships of the church. And that's what Paul tells Titus. Remember, Titus is commissioned to go to Crete, and he has a pretty significant responsibility. These false teachers, they've been disrupting the work of the church on this little island. Now, what's happening in this disruption is Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 1 that they're upsetting entire families. So this is a big deal. Families are being disrupted because of what these teachers are teaching. And this is happening because of the teaching, verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, I want to suggest that the deficit in the teaching is not necessarily all to do with the content, but it has more to do with the integrity of the teaching. Here you have these teachers who pontificate, they're verbose, they're heady, and what they're teaching never translates into a life of good works, and that is upsetting the church. So how do you fix the problem? How do you set a church on fire? How do you give people purpose? Well, Paul says it has something to do with the relationship. So we're in chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 10. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So here are the steps that Paul prescribes to Titus to unleash a church, to set a church on fire, to help the church become zealous for good works. First, he wants Titus to teach doctrine to build a hunger for obedience, not a gluttony for knowledge. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says this to Titus. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, if you're reading out of the English Standard Version, a very good translation, a translation that I read out of, it's unfortunate that the editors chose the, the, the subheading that they did. They say, teach sound doctrine, but is that what Paul says? No. He says, teach what a 
accords with sound doctrine, which is an important distinction because we're not talking here about a knowledge problem. We're not even talking about a comprehension problem. We are talking about an application problem. And if you're in one of our small group discipleship communities, we're looking at James and in chapter one of James, verse 22, James says this to believers. He says, be what? Doers of the word and not hearers only. So deceiving yourselves. And here's the thing. You can get self-deceived quickly when you start getting into this whole knowledge thing with regard to the scriptures. You can come to the place where you think you believe something because you know it. I believe it because I like the ideas. And here's what it looks like practically speaking within a church. You show up to preaching. You get into Bible study groups. You start reading all the surrounding notes and information about the Bible passage and you pick apart the words and the references and the phrases. And when it comes to the application of the word, you think in terms of oughts and shoulds. As in, broadly speaking, Christians ought to love their neighbor. But then I ask you the question, do you know your neighbor's name? Have you done anything meaningful in your neighbor's life? Or here's the real question we need to ask when we look at the word of God. What is the Holy Spirit saying to me, not to the derelict person that I know next to me? You see, we can deceive ourselves because I know something and it's a trap. And the trap is this, we can actually take biblical knowledge and use it like insulation. We can neatly pad our minds and our hearts thickly with facts and figures and references and theological positions and actually use those things to inadvertently dampen the voice of God in our hearts. And that's precisely what the Pharisees did, isn't it? Uh, while we were in Turkey, I had the opportunity to read a couple of books. If you've ever done one of these tours, you have to think of a, a Holy Land tour differently than an Apostle Paul tour. When you go to the Holy Land, you're in Israel, you need to think about a state the size of, you know, something like Rhode Island. So you get all over the place in Israel and see all kinds of sites. But when you go to Turkey, you, now you need to think in terms of the state the size of Texas. So guess what you're doing a lot of? Riding in a bus, right? So I'm reading books, I'm being a good student. I pick up a book by a guy named Jim Martin, the, the name of the book is Just Church. And one of the problems that he's unpacking in this book is he says, why is it that there are issues around the world like human trafficking, human slavery? Why is it so prevalent when there is such a big population of Christians in the world and churches in the world? And he's unpacking that problem, he notes some dissonance between what we have by way of knowledge and what we do by way of being involved in these types of situations. On the knowledge side, if you're an English-speaking Christian, you have access to an, a, a totally 
unhistoric amount of information with regard to God's word. I mean, it is insane how much information we have at our access. I, I was just thinking about it the other day. I was like, I could wake up at 5 a.m. I could read all the way to 10 p.m. I could do that for the rest of my life, and I still wouldn't scratch the surface with all of the materials out there that I could be reading. So here you have this problem, and knowledge is a good thing but you can turn it into a gluttony. You can actually consume so much that you become this kind of obese, sedentary Christian. One pastor said this. He said that your education must never grow beyond your obedience. You got that? Your education must never grow beyond your obedience. So if God wor God's word says something, and you're like, okay, I got that, but you haven't started applying it yet, well, you're really not ready to move on with the word of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love theology and books and knowledge. I read all kinds of books. But here is the distinction that I'm trying to make with you this morning. Biblical knowledge is supposed to be fuel for obedience. That's what its purpose is. That's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we've got to change our craving, right? We've got to crave doing what the word says and not just simply learning more about what it says. Now, this is what will ignite a church. Doctrinal integrity. Your doctrine should never be divorced from your deeds. Your orthodoxy must never be insulated away from your orthopraxy. Your walk must be in line with your talk. But the next question we have is then, well, that's true. We can all agree with this. But Paul, how do I get that into the church? How do I take that from, you know, the pastor knowing things and the elders knowing things and the members knowing things all the way down to the infant? toddler nursery. How do you get the teaching into the church? And here's the second thing that he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that you expand the teaching ministry of the church by leveraging the relationships of the church. Now, that's really hard for me to say this morning. I'm just going to be honest with you. I understand this and I put a lot of time into sermons. Some of them take hours and hours to put together. But I'm going to acknowledge to you this morning that the vast majority of the teaching ministry of the church that touches your life, that is instrumental, that impacts you, is not coming from my mouth and it's not happening right here on Sunday morning. Why? Because I get one hour with you per week if I'm lucky. So the vast majority of the teaching ministry of the church is happening in more obscure places, like the home, in the workplace, 
And those car rides when you're driving the child to school or to soccer practice around the dinner table or as you're tucking them into bed at night. It's the everyday ordinary interactions that church members build between one another, like going out for coffee or moms getting together for play dates or simply getting on the phone with someone or texting someone or or sending them an email. That's where the majority of the teaching ministry of the church takes place, which means then if I'm a wise pastor... I'm not going to be looking to expand my teaching ministry necessarily that's affecting the church by filming myself, you know? I'm sorry, I've got an ugly mug and it wouldn't work well anyway. Or if you say, well, you've got a face for radio, get on the radio. (laughs) Listen, that's fine. I can expand that one-hour interaction with more people, but I can't expand the effect of the teaching ministry that way. The only way to do that is to leverage the relationships of the church. Now, as you look at verses 2 through 10, Paul tells us in the text, there are some incredible relational opportunities that exist within any local church. It doesn't matter what church you walk into. If you get the church aligned on this, that church can become really effective and really zealous for good works, and it's really simple. Guess what churches have, hopefully? Churches have older men and older women, and churches also have, get this, Younger men and younger women. Isn't that just a novel thought? I mean, it's just, whoa, I can't believe it. And Paul says that if you want to leverage those relationships, maximize them, you need two things. You need model and you need mentorship. And it always begins with model. Got to start there. Here's what he's saying to older Christians. Look at me and listen. Younger Christians are watching you so you'd better behave. They're watching you. That's what is informing them in terms of what the faith looks like and how to practice the faith and You might be asking yourself the question, well, how do I know if I'm an older Christian? Well, I'm going to give you a number today. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? I'm I'm just thinking in terms of what the Apostle Paul would have thought in his mind as he was thinking of an older Christian. And and biblically speaking, he would have thought that someone was in the older category if they were 56 and up. And I know, I know, 40 is the new 20, But, but, too bad, you're in that category. You're you're in their glory years. You're in the years where you can be most effective for the gospel of Jesus by you just being you at 56. And he tells these older Christians, listen, the way you infect the church with your model is you exercise, here it is, self control. He repeats that word multiple times, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6. Self-control 
flows through a church from older to younger. And here's the thing, both generations have their own unique challenges, challenges in maintaining self-control. I was listening to Alistair Begg preach on Titus 2, and he made this observation for older men. He, he noted that older men tend to find themselves on an extreme, on one of two ends of a spectrum. On, on one end, you have this older man who is, you know, he's sentimental. Oh, I'm uncritical towards everything in life. It's all just good. I mean, the building could be burning around around him, but he's sitting there thinking about how great the building is and how much he's loved the building. And you're like, dude, it's burning. Like, get yourself out of here and think a thought about what's happening right now. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the attitude of censorship, which is that critical spirit. You think of the old man standing at the door as people are walking through the church, frowning and wagging his finger at everyone. And here's the thing, the church, it doesn't need old fuddy-duddies, it doesn't need old fools, and it doesn't need old another word that starts with an F that I'm not going to say this morning. It needs men of bearing and gravitas, the kind of men who when younger men look at them, they think to themselves, I want to be like him. Now, older women, he doesn't let you off the hook. He also says in the text that the church doesn't need the town informant or the town drunk. It doesn't need that individual who knows all the latest and greatest gossip that's happening around the church. Did you know? Oh, you didn't? Well, let's pray about that right now. No, he says in the text to older women that you need to be reverent in your behavior. Now, that audience, when they heard the word reverent, they would have thought of the role of the priestess. So here you have this woman, again, of bearing and gravitas, who when people look at her, they think to themselves, she has good conversations with Jesus. I know she does. And, and you know, these women in the church over the years, I I've thought, Man, if, if anyone's to be praying for me in the church, I hope they are. Because I know that when they ask God for things, like God does things. And I know a lot of times when I pray for things, not much happens. Because they practice the presence of God. They meet with him. They know him. I'm telling you, when older Christians step into their dignified status in the church, the church's teaching ministry is set ablaze. And it naturally moves then from model into mentorship. Now, what is mentorship? Well, most naturally, uh, a mentor is just simply a, an advisor to you, an experienced advisor. So that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about someone who knows Jesus, who has experienced walking with Jesus, who's been through the good times, the bad times, if you will, and they're on the other side to say, yes, you can do this. We all need someone in our life like that. John Stott, he says this, human beings seem to be imitative by nature. 
imitative. We see and then we do. So we need those examples of challenge and inspiration if we're going to be all that God wants us to be in the local church. Now I want to give you a couple of guidelines when it comes to a good mentor and what does that look like and how do I be that for someone else. And really the guidelines make a lot of sense when you think about them. The first guideline is this, that they're just patient. A good mentor is patient. They're not expecting you to be further along than you're supposed to be at the present. I think of it with my own children. I don't expect my eight-year-old son to be as mature as my 13-year-old daughter. You know, like if she's sitting around the table and still slopping food all over the table, I'm like, girl, like we've got to work on this. Whereas he, if he's doing it, I'm like, we still got to work on it, but he's eight, right? There's a difference. So young Christians need older Christians who are willing to be patient. And that really moves into the next space, which is grace. Because guess what? They're probably actually dealing with the very thing that you're dealing with, that you were dealing with 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago at that time in their walk. I remember when I first started walking with Jesus, one of the hardest decisions that I had to make, and this was big in my world and it required faith, was to throw away my CD collection because I had all these CDs with lyrics that were just not good for my mind if I kept listening to them. And I'm telling you, it was such an act of faith because I almost didn't want to continue walking with Jesus over it. That's where I was. I'm telling you today, I'd throw them away without a second thought. Wouldn't even be an issue for me. But back then, it was a big issue, and I needed believers of grace to help walk me through that. Thirdly, they are good listeners. We live in a culture that talks and talks and talks incessantly, and we don't shut up. I'm just going to be honest. Our mouths are moving a mile a minute. And, and here's the thing. If someone doesn't ask good questions of you and listen, they're not really interested in you, are they? No. Not at all. And if they're just talking and if they're just telling stories about themselves, guess who they are interested in? Mm-hmm. Stories, my friends, are like salt or garlic on steak, right? A little bit of salt, a little bit of garlic, ooh, that's a good tasting steak. But when you dump like a whole bottle of salt on a steak, ugh, it's disgusting. And then you're looking across the table and their eyes are just glazing over, right? They're gone. Listen. In fact, if I was to give you a process for when do I give advice, it would flow like this. Number one on the list is listen. Number two then is pray. <laughs> and then number three is advice. And when you get to the space of advice, then you got to do this. You've got to provide biblically sound counsel. Now, when I talk about biblically sound counsel, I'm not necessarily saying that you're always quoting a verse at someone, though that may be apropos at times. 
But whatever counsel you're giving, it needs to line up with what the Bible says is biblically wise. Young Christians need people like this in their lives. We're desperate for it. The church is desperate for it. Without these kinds of people, we don't see what it looks like to live for Jesus on purpose. Makes me think of a little cartoon, a Peanuts cartoon. It's very memorable. Snoopy is coming to terms with his purposelessness and what is he after all? He's a dog. And Linus takes a stick and he starts winding up to throw the stick across the yard. And Snoopy gets all excited because he's a dog. His tail's wagging. He's getting ready to go chase after this stick. And then he has this pause, this moment of reflection. And he thinks to himself in that moment of reflection, oh boy, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice dog, he chased after sticks. Friends, how many people are chasing after sticks right now? Oh, the new latest and greatest diet fad. Oh, the new latest and greatest. This is how you get quick, rich, quick. I can't even say it scheme. They're chasing after sticks. And they need to say, see people who are mature and of bearing that say, I don't do that. I'm not interested in that. Now Paul's telling us all of this because doctrine matters. Doctrine is really what the world sees when we live it out. The gospel's reputation is at stake when we are living out our doctrine. If you look at verses 5, 8, 10, he kind of repeats that theme multiple times. He's encouraging younger women to fulfill their role so that, what? The word of God may not be reviled. You look at verse 8, he says the same thing to Titus. Your example matters. There's people in the church that might oppose you, and your model needs to put them to shame so that they have nothing to say about you. And in verse 10, to the bondservants, he says to them, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. The gospel's reputation is on the line. It's like clothing. And when you wear beautiful clothing, it really makes the gospel look attractive. And when you wear really shabby, disgusting clothing, well, let's just say it doesn't make it look so good. And if you're talking if you're thinking in your head of experiences and conversations that you've had with people over why do you not go to church, what is the number one reason? What is the number one reason they say, I don't go to church? They met a believer. And the believer wasn't wearing good clothes. G.K. Chesterton, he said this, it's not that the Bible's approach has been tried and found wanting. It's that the Bible's approach has been found difficult and therefore left untried. So you sit down and you talk to these people and you start unpacking their story and it's like, well, tell me a teaching of Jesus that you have a problem with. And Tell me of an example of Jesus' life in the Gospels where you're like, boy, I couldn't follow a Savior like him. And 
it never comes down to that. It's always, I knew someone and they said they loved him and they did X. Andrew Murray, the devotional writer, he wrote a very powerful book on parenting and there's a real parallel here, isn't there, between mentorship and leveraging the relationships of the church and this idea of parenting. And he had this principle. He said, he said, example is better than precept. Example is better than precept, or put differently, modeling mentor, mentorship that's more effective than lecturing or even nagging someone. And listen to what he writes. Not in what we say and teach, but in what we are and do lies the power of training. Not as we think as an ideal for which to train our children, but as we live, do we train them. It is not our wishes or our theory, but our will and practice that really train. It is by living the Christ life that we prove that we love it, that we have it, and thus will influence the young mind to love it and have it too. So when we bring this all together, as we look at Titus 2, as we're looking for the big idea, it's pretty simple. Teaching that accords with sound doctrine is actually just this idea of example is better than precept. And when the church lives the doctrine out with integrity, it sets the place on fire. The church becomes that city on a hill. It becomes zealous for good works. And that is all taking place and in infiltrating the church, if you will, through the relationships of the church. So I come back to that awkward question. When was the last time you took someone out on a date? Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, as we sit under this powerful, living word, we ask that you would speak to us through it. Lord, we don't want to be the kind of Christian that just takes in information and then gets general with it, the shoulds and the oughts. We want to be asking the question, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me this morning through the word? So what? We've just heard it spoken. What do you want me to do, Lord, with this? I pray for each one here. I just, I ask, Lord, I believe even. I believe that you have something of purpose for their life. It's all over the scriptures. It's not about the preacher being above the rest of the congregation. Every member of the church is meant to fuel the mission of the church. So raise us up, use us. I think especially of the younger Christian in the room that's just still working through their next steps of obedience, Lord. I pray that you would meet them in a special way this morning, that you would encourage their heart to stick with it, to keep moving forward in this life of faith. We love you, Lord. We love you for changing us. And Lord, we want to be that city on a hill. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.